Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Deborah Soap podcast. This week, I am doing my first solo episode on the subject of grooming. I've been wanting to do this episode for a while, so I appreciate you guys being patient with me. This information is especially timely right now when we look at what's happening in education with regard to some of the very inappropriate conversations we see happening between teachers and students. Also with regards to some of the materials like books, the curriculum in terms of gender ideology, conversations about human sexuality. And then also when we look at TV shows, movies, there's a lot there. It's really a nightmare, I think, to be wading through. So I really wanted to put this episode together for parents and caregivers, as well as educators who aren't woke. I hear from many of you all the time telling me that you're really horrified at what's happening in the classroom, the types of directives you're being given, what you see your colleagues teaching other kids. So I'll start by saying, if you haven't listened to episodes 39 and 40 with James Lindsay, these were very popular episodes. We talk about political and sexual grooming, so I highly recommend listening to those episodes as well. In this episode, I'm going to talk about what grooming is, more so in the context of sexual grooming. So I'm not saying that in the situations of what we're seeing with education, say K through 12, teaching materials and the conversations that educators and teachers are having with kids. I'm not saying that that is necessarily sexual grooming. I would definitely consider that political grooming, but I'm going to talk about sexual grooming in this episode because I think once you understand the signs of sexual grooming, you'll see it in different contexts in terms of political grooming and also in terms of, so I'm going to be talking about sexual grooming in the context of kids, but adults can also be groomed. Adults can be groomed sexually. They can be groomed politically as well. In terms of sexual grooming of adults, this can happen in the context of an adult who's trying to abuse another adult, or it can also be in the context of an adult who wants to get access to another adult's child. And so they'll groom that adult so that the adult will give them access to the child. So for this episode, I'm going to talk about what grooming is, the red flags to look out for, the type of person who tends to commit sexual abuse of children, what you can do in terms of prevention, and also I'm going to answer some audience questions. So across the board, doesn't matter what the context is, once you know what the signs of grooming are, you'll recognize them and you can't unsee them. And that's why I think it's so powerful to to share this information because it's like a light bulb goes off or it's like you the, the clouds part and you suddenly see things for what they really are. And I also think it's very important for parents who are concerned to know that it's okay to be concerned. I see many parents' concerns being dismissed as being overprotective. And so that's another part of the, this episode. And that's going to be a theme that is consistent throughout because as parents, you know what's best for your kids. And I don't think you should ever feel badly or feel guilty or feel like you should not have this concern for them. Before I get into today's episode, I want to take a second to tell you guys about AG1. I started taking AG1 because I've been looking for an all-in-one nutritional drink. In between writing, podcasting, and reading hate comments, I don't have a lot of time to be thinking about my nutrition. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day well. This special blend supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I like to take AG1 mixed with cold water. It makes me feel very healthy and has this mild tropical taste. You can mix yours with juice, milk, a smoothie, or whatever you're into. AG1 costs less than $3 a day and is lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. AG1 also supports mental clarity and alertness, which is especially important when you're waging war on unhinged activists. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com so. Again, that is athleticgreens.com so, spelled S-O-H, as in my last name, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. 
Back to today's episode. I want to start by saying this episode should not be used as a checklist for diagnosis. If you have concerns, you should talk to your physician or a mental health professional. Sexual abuse and sexual assault are understandably uncomfortable topics, but ignoring them and the potential risk to kids does a disservice to children. I've said this before. I don't think victims should feel any shame about what happened to them. My heart goes out to any of you listening right now who may be victims. In my mind, the fact that this keeps happening is more of a reason to talk about child sexual abuse and to bring awareness to it so that we can stop it from happening. My opinion is based on my time and experience working in the field, doing research on pedophilia and sexual offending, and working clinically with individuals convicted of child sexual abuse. I've also worked with victims in the past. When you have the experience I've had working with sex offenders and understanding how their minds work, you draw connections and see things that other people do not see. So my goal with this episode is to share that insight with you. If and when you talk about this subject with other people after listening to this episode, or I'm sure some of you listening have done so in the past, and I I guarantee you will experience or have probably experienced some pushback from other people. They may accuse you of being paranoid. They'll say things like, oh, that doesn't happen, or people don't like, think like that, or they'll say, oh, well, how can you punish someone for being good with kids. And the thing is, if you ask someone in the field or someone who has worked with sex offenders what their opinion is, they will tell you, no, this is definitely a problem. This definitely happens. And the people who who have these very, I don't want to say they're ignorant, but the people who have these very (laughs) shiny, optimistic views of sexual predators, I can guarantee you they've never sat down and actually had a conversation with any of these people. Grooming behaviors are very sneaky and they can very easily be dismissed as kindness or someone being good with kids, as I mentioned. And that's the thing. You can never 100% know unless you can get into someone's mind or unless they have, you do find that they have committed child sexual abuse. You can never really know what someone's intentions are by doing something because many of these signs could be seen as innocuous. It could be, oh, this person is just being nice to a kid. But my goal in highlighting them and talking about this is that what you're trying to do, I would say, is reduce the risk of sexual abuse as much as you can. You can't lower the risk of sexual abuse to zero unless you lock your child in your basement until they're, say, 25, which (laughs) needless to say, don't do that. As in life, it's not possible to reduce the risk of anything to zero. But when you start to see certain signs, especially if you start to see patterns of signs, when you know what to look for, it doesn't really matter what someone's intention is because you as a parent, I think, have a right to step in and say, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. It just gives you more information about somebody. So like I said in my episodes with James Lindsay, these techniques feed on people's goodwill. That's why they work. And that's why abusers keep using them. There are a variety of things that grooming accomplishes that I'll get into Child sexual abuse is very common, and if it doesn't happen to your child, it will likely happen to a child you know. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 1 in 4 girls and 1 in 13 boys have experienced childhood sexual abuse. I wouldn't be surprised if those numbers were, in fact, higher because child sex abuse is such a taboo subject that people don't really talk about, although I do think that's getting better. I think rates of reporting are also quite low, so of the kids who experience sexual abuse and who do even talk about it or disclose it, they may not necessarily report it to law enforcement. And I think this is especially stigmatized for boys. Not to say that that I don't, I mean, I think this is stigmatized for girls as well, but I think there's an, an added layer of stigmatization for boys who are sexually abused. So as I mentioned, grooming serves a number of goals for the abuser. Number one, it allows them to test the waters with a child to see whether a particular child will be open to sexual abuse. So the easiest way is if that child trusts them and if the abuser does not have to use force. Also, if the abuser doesn't need to use force, that means that it's more likely that the child in the future will let them continue abusing them. So the biggest concern for an abuser is finding vulnerable victims who are not going to report them after. So this is why they really work on having a relationship with the child, having a positive relationship with the child 
and usually also the parents as well. The parents are being groomed, you know, the family's being groomed, the whole community is being groomed so that, again, it facilitates the abuser getting sexual access to the child. Also, the child staying quiet, not reporting them. And if the child does eventually report them or disclose that this has happened to them, it increases the likelihood that the child will not be believed. Or if the child does not disclose, it allows the abuser to continue to get sexual access to the child. So it serves many goals. And groomers are extremely manipulative. They're very manipulative in their ability and very effective in finding children who are vulnerable and in exploiting their vulnerabilities. Now, one, one powerful way that parents can prevent grooming from continuing on to actual sexual abuse, some might consider grooming in itself to be a form of sexual abuse, and I don't disagree with that, but I would say one thing that groomers are looking for is they want to see which kids are going to keep secrets and protect the abuser. So biggest thing I would say for parents, if your child, if they ask a child to keep a secret and the child does not keep that secret, the groomer learns that it's going to be more difficult for them to abuse that child and to get away with it. It's important to note that the process of grooming is very gradual. This is intentional because it's meant to be confusing for the child. The groomer does not want the child to realize that they're being groomed. They don't want the child to notice when the relationship eventually becomes sexual. They want the child to second guess themselves. And they want the child to also feel as though they are somewhat responsible. Because again, this increases the likelihood that the child is not going to disclose it. If the child cares about the abuser, they don't want bad things to happen to the abuser. It's also really important to note that children and their parents usually know the abuser. Stranger danger situations are much rarer. So we do see these, these cases of predators going out, picking a child up off the street, a complete stranger, abusing them, and then dropping them back off where they found the child. In some cases, tragically, the child may not be returned. I'm not saying that one case is, is any worse than the other. I think child sexual abuse across the board, sexual assault and abuse across the board are terrible things. But I think it's important for parents to be aware that in the majority of cases, the child knows the abuser and the parents also know the abuser. So this will help you be aware of the I, I think sometimes parents may have a blind spot and assume that and put all this focus on strangers or, or this malevolent force out there somewhere coming in and abusing their kids, not realizing that the predators are actually quite close to them. So that's something to be aware of. And I would I would advise parents to put as much effort into keeping your kids safe from strangers as keeping them safe from people you know. I mean, that might sound dark, but that's just the reality. That's unfortunately how this type of abuse works. And so it's also important for your kids to know that sexual abuse can happen from not just adults, but also other kids and teenagers that they know. All right, so I'm going to talk about the reasons why people sexually abuse children, because I'm sure people are wondering why, why would someone do this to a child? And I think also when you understand the motivating factors, it makes sense why we see these horrific cases of people who have hundreds or thousands of victims. So pedophilia is the sexual interest in prepubescent children. So these are kids under the age of 11, typically. So basically what this means is if someone is pedophilic, they will have a preference for that age category. They may or may not also be sexually interested in adults. So just because someone is married or has a romantic partner or a long-term partner or just because they're a parent, this does not mean they don't have pedophilic interests. Pedophilia is also more common in straight men than gay men. Pedophilia exists predominantly, if not solely, in men. And I'll explain why in a moment. This isn't to say that women aren't sexual abusers, but when women abuse kids, it is for reasons other than pedophilia. So women are not sexually attracted to kids. Whether or not they report being sexually attracted to kids, their reasons for committing sexual abuse against children usually have more to do with a personality disorder. In some cases, um, or I would say in most cases, they likely have a male partner who is encouraging them to facilitate this abuse, whether it's abuse of their own child or another child. It's very much different from men who sexually abuse kids. I also want to point out that this is not about power and control because that's a very common narrative. 
That is not correct. If you actually understand human sexuality, you understand sex differences with regard to human sexuality, you'll know that power and control are not part of the equation. It's very much about sexual preference. I used to do brain imaging of pedophiles, and these studies I worked on showed that pedophilia is something in the brain. There's something about the wiring of these men's brains that leads them to inappropriately identify children as sexual targets. So I want to be very clear. Pedophilia is biological. It cannot be cured. That says nothing about someone's behavior. I think whether or not something is biological is not an excuse for someone to get a free pass on their behavior. I think anyone who abuses a child should be held criminally responsible 100%. And I do not think that pedophilia should be normalized or destigmatized. I don't believe children can consent to sex. I talked about this James Lindsay about how I'm really concerned about how this so-called normalization of pedophilia can and will be abused and misused, especially if it becomes a civil rights issue, which is very disturbing to me. So I want to be very clear with that. It's also important, I think, for parents to know that in the past, there was this narrative that people who sexually abuse kids were themselves sexually abused. And this is not true. This has actually been debunked with research. Sex offenders will, well, sex offenders lie about everything, but they will frequently lie about having experienced childhood sexual abuse to evoke sympathy in hopes of getting a lighter sentence when they are being prosecuted. So again, regardless of someone's history, regardless of whether pedophilia is biological, it does not mean that someone should not be held accountable for their actions. So now that you understand pedophilia and the fact that this is something that can't be cured, this is a sexual preference that some people have, it speaks to why some people will go to such lengths to get access to child victims and why they will in some cases build their entire life around having these opportunities in terms of say the vocations that they choose. So of course this is not to say that every adult who works with kids is a potential predator but I think it's just something that parents should be aware of. I think this is totally commonsensical. It should not be controversial to say that. All right, so there are different reasons why people sexually abuse children. And for people who abuse kids who are not pedophilic, so incest offenders are less likely to be pedophilic. So these are people who abuse children within the family. So in this case, it can have to do with a really dysfunctional family dynamic, needless to say. Sometimes people have a fear of intimacy with adults, and so they'll choose to have children as sexual partners, which is completely inappropriate and wrong. Sometimes it's the abuse is about extracting revenge on that child's parents. In the case of a, ch- of a step-parent, they'll do that. If someone is pedophilic, they are more likely to have victims outside of the family. And if someone has multiple victims, that's also indicative of pedophilia. So I remember when I was doing this work, it was really sad. Usually by the time someone comes in for an assessment, so by the time they've been arrested and charged with an offense, there are usually a history of victims or multiple victims because the first child victim was not believed. Hopefully that this will change. I mean, that's one of my goals in having worked in that field and also talking about it now that to bring awareness of this and to really push back against those people who say like, oh, fears of this are overblown or that doesn't really happen. It's so important that people believe kids when this happens. And I'll talk more about that as well. So approximately 1% to 5% of the male population is pedophilic. So when you think about this, I mean, 1% to 5% sounds like it's a, that's a sizable amount of society. And if the way I conceptualize it is if you are walking down the street, for every 100 men you pass, between one and five of them, statistically speaking, have a sexual interest in children under the age of 11. So I'm not saying that this is about all men or that all men are sexual predators. Anyone who follows my work knows that that's not my view. When you understand how common pedophilia is, you won't be phased when you hear about these cases in the news. And it really doesn't matter how profile the person is or what is at stake. When you understand how prevalent it is and also the reason why people commit this abuse, it will give you a more clear perspective on it. And I think that I think the reason why people are so much in denial about it is because they don't understand that. 
So there was one study that looked at the prevalence of sexual abuse in grades K through 12 schools, and it estimates that 10% of students experience some form of sexual abuse from a teacher or school employee. So this translates to millions of children. Sexual abuse can also be intergenerational. So this is one thing I want to definitely point out. If you or someone in your family has experienced sexual abuse as a child, and that abuser is allowed to roam freely in society, do not leave children in that person's presence. I would go so far as to say, do not allow children to be around that person at all. Some people may say, oh, well, if they're not alone, that's okay. But sexual abuse can happen and does happen even when an abuser is in the presence of the child's parents. If you look at the case of Larry Nasser, many of these girls were sexually abused while their parents were in the same room. So going back to this point about intergenerational abuse, I would see, when I used to work in the field, I would see time and time again, grandfathers who had molested their daughter when she was a child, then she grows up, has a daughter, and the grandfather goes on to molest her child. So now the grandfather has molested his daughter and has molested his granddaughter. Sometimes it's multiple daughters and multiple granddaughters. And then for some reason, the child's mother, so his daughter, who experienced molestation from him, is surprised when he abuses her child. And it surely has something to do with the family dynamic and in terms of what people in that, in that dynamic see as normal. But that to me is an absolute no-brainer. If you know that someone has abused a child, just, just think. That's all I can say. So I'm going to talk about grooming signs. So as I mentioned, the groomer will usually target a vulnerable victim. They'll notice if a child tends to be trusting, if they are troubled, if they're needy. They know that a child who is troubled especially is not going to believe if they report abuse. It's more likely that people will believe the abuser, not the child, unfortunately. They also know that children who are being neglected are going to be especially vulnerable and receptive to any form of friendship or love or affection. Groomers will also target children living with a single parent, especially if it's a single mother, because they know that the children are in, in looking for a father figure and they are lacking adult supervision in their life. So sometimes the groomers will operate under the guise of wanting to help a woman with childcare or offer mentorship to her kids. It's also important to note, though, that because women are generally seen as caretakers and as nurturing and more safe than men, they will be given easier access to kids and their grooming behaviors are more easily hidden. So that's something that parents should also be aware of. The groomer will usually be grooming multiple children at once, which also speaks to why they'll choose occupations that allow them to get access to many different kids at the same time. You know, I've heard of some abusers who will abuse multiple different kids in the same day in some cases, which is very disturbing. It's important for parents to tell your kids to tell you if an adult asks them to spend time alone. So this includes if it is somebody that you all know. There's no reason why an adult needs to spend inordinate amounts of time with your child. Okay, so once the groomer has access to the child, they will seek to isolate the child. They will offer to do things like give them car rides home. They will offer to take them to the bathroom, maybe help them with potty training. They will take the child on overnight stays. The tricky thing here is you have to be aware of this even in the context of family members, which I can fully understand may be offensive to some people. Some people might think, well, why would I ever suspect someone in the family of this? But I'm the whole point of this episode is just for me to give you guys the information in terms of data points and you can do what you choose with it. I'm operating from a place of saying, yeah, ideally we would not have to think about this and we would not have to think about family members being inappropriate, but that's just the reality of it. So it is what it is. 
Another thing to look out for is non-sexual physical contact. So if you see an adult touching a child, even if it's not for sexual reasons, if they do that in front of the child's parents, what that conveys to the child is this person is safe because my parents are letting them have physical contact with me. And that opens up the door for someone who is looking to abuse a child to turn that touch into something that's sexual down the line. And the child is going to have a harder time differentiating and saying, okay, this is not okay now. So it's just, it creates another level of confusion for the child. It's very much intentional. So that's something to also look out for. Hugs are another thing to look out for, or anyone who wants to put a child who is not their own in their lap, to sit them in their lap, that makes me very uncomfortable. And I think it should make other parents uncomfortable too. I can tell you from my time working with pedophiles that you cannot tell whether someone is a pedophile or a child sex abuser by looking at them. These people are not creepy weirdos, driving vans, luring kids with candy. I'm sure you and my audience have heard this before, but I think it bears repeating. You, you cannot tell. And pedophiles do not fit a stereotypical image, whatever it is that we conjure up in our minds. They come from all different types of backgrounds, every race, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic status, age, education, it does not matter. I remember seeing doctors and lawyers coming into the clinic as patients when I used to do this work. Child sex abusers are super charismatic. They are usually very well liked. They have a good reputation in the community. Other adults think very highly of them. They make a point of creating this image of themselves so that they can get access to kids and so that people don't suspect them of any wrongdoing. I mean, many of these people also have comorbidity in terms of they have personality disorders. They may have psychopathy. I'm not going to get too much into that for this episode, but just basically, if you see someone who is really good with kids, they're really friendly, they seem to know and know a lot about what kids like and kids love them. Of course, not to say this about everyone, but that's another thing to look out for. Abusers will usually know a lot about what kids like in terms of TV shows, music, they'll talk like them. They'll have a lot of things in common with these kids so that they can bond with them very easily. Other signs to look out for, abusers will be very generous with their time and also with their money. So they will tend to give kids very lavish gifts. They'll give them money. They'll sometimes give them cell phones so that they can communicate with them more easily and directly. So that is something definitely parents should look out for. There's no reason why an adult should be giving your child a cell phone. There's just, there's not. I mean, well, there is for nefarious reasons. In some cases, they'll give the kids drugs and alcohol. When the friendship or relationship starts to have sexual connotations, this usually will start with innocent jokes, using sexual language. The abuser will find settings by which to normalize nudity. So things like changing or showering in front of the child or watching the child when they are doing these things. They will, in some cases, show the child pornography. So you might ask me, do I think educators who are having conversations with their students about sex or sexuality or topics like masturbation, do I think they're doing this with the goal of sexually abusing these kids? So best case scenario, I think some educators might might be doing so because they think that talking about these topics will remove the stigma around sex or will help to make kids feel more comfortable in their bodies or even they may think that they are lessening the risk of these kids being abused. But in today's day and age, I think this creates a very dangerous environment. Well, I think it creates a very dangerous environment, period. But especially now when you see what's happening with regard to the political grooming aspect on top of it, I think it it just creates way too much of a risk and it it it's too easy for this to be used as a way of desensitizing kids for the purpose of abuse. So as parents, I think you are fully within your right to feel uncomfortable, to voice this discomfort. I'm sure I don't need to tell you guys listening this. It's fully within your right to not want to have these conversations in the classroom. And I do think Florida's parental rights bill is very important and will hopefully be a precedent to snuffing out this problem more widely. Once the abuse has occurred, the abuser will use certain tactics that will allow them to continue abusing the child. 
So they'll encourage the child to keep it a secret. They will use threats. They will threaten to harm the child's parents, which is why it's important for parents to tell their kids, let your kids know that no one can hurt you. And that if anyone ever threatens to hurt a child's parent, the child should report it to the parents regardless. In some cases, the abuser will blame the child to make them feel like they're responsible for the abuse. So other times they'll tell the child that they love them. And so then the child feels guilty and torn because they don't want something bad to happen to the abuser if they do report it. So these warning signs don't necessarily mean that abuse has occurred, but I think parents should be concerned if you see a pattern of behavior. Some of the red flags of sexual abuse. So with regard to physical signs, and again, of course, these signs don't definitively mean that sexual abuse has occurred, but they are things to just keep an eye out for. Okay, so there are some physical signs. I would say don't be dependent on looking for these signs because in many cases, sexual abuse does not require force. It's in the best interests of the abuser to not have to use force because, again, there will be fewer telltale signs and also it increases the likelihood that they'll be able to continue abusing the child. But some physical signs can include blood. So if you see this on towels, in a child's underwear, in the toilet, Chronic ear infections. So I don't want to be too graphic, but I'll explain it like this in case you guys aren't aware. The ears, the nose, and the throat are all connected. And so this is not the case for every child who experiences childhood sexual abuse. But one thing I have noticed from my experience working in the field is that people who experienced childhood sexual abuse tend to report also having, uh, re- remembering having many ear infections as kids. And there's something going on with the child's immune response. And then I think also because those parts of the body are connected anatomically, then it leads to ear infections. There has been research to show that respiratory and genital infections, so this is not including sexually transmitted infections, but respiratory and genital infections are also associated with childhood sexual abuse. So again, it speaks again to this dysregulation of the immune system. So that's another thing to be aware of. Bedwetting is also another symptom. In terms of behavioral signs, you want to look for changes in a child's behavior. Again, I don't think any of these signs individually are necessarily indicative of anything, but if, say, a child is really good at school before and they suddenly get start getting poor grades or if they are suddenly skipping classes. I think also if kids start turning to drugs and alcohol, that's a worrying sign. I mean, it could be for a whole bunch of different reasons why some kids just are experimental, but it's worth a conversation, I would say. I would be very concerned if I noticed sexualized behavior in children, especially prepubescent children. If you see a child using sexual behavior as a way of engaging with other people or as a a way of socializing, if a child has knowledge of sex that is not age appropriate, I remember one case that I saw. It was a neighbor who saw these kids. They were siblings. They saw the kids sexually acting out in the backyard, and the neighbor reported it. And then it turned out that the father was actually abusing them. When you see things like this as an adult, I really say it's on us to be responsible and to notice it, not to turn away from it, and to report it because these kids are dependent on us to do the right thing. Hypersexuality, now this is something that I noticed in my own research. This is another one of my areas of expertise when I was in academia. And in both men and women, again, of course, not everybody, but hypersexuality is correlated with childhood sexual abuse. And I, I thought this was interesting because usually for men, because men on average do have a higher sex drive. I think we as a culture tend to just dismiss that to some extent. We just say, oh, well, that's just men. But from the conversations I would have with these individuals, an unusually high percentage of men who are hypersexual as adults. So by hypersexual, I mean their sexual behavior is excessive or disrupts their life in some way to the point where they're having trouble holding down a job or having a relationship or basically being functional. These men would tell me that they had experienced sexual abuse in childhood. So I do think there's a link there that we probably don't talk enough about. I think with women, there's more of a conversation because people are more quick to 
punish women or castigate women if they are hypersexual. But for men, I think there is, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of men and women who are just enjoy having lots of sex because that's what they're into. Maybe there's no abuse at the root of it. But I do wonder how many men out there who are very, very sexual, who, and maybe it may not even be disrupting them in their, in their life, but it's coming from a place of this trauma that they experienced and a way of them trying to make sense of that trauma. I would also say if you have suspicions that a child has been sexually abused to get an assessment from a medical professional, I think you should report it. If you're not satisfied, you can always get a second opinion. With regard to prevention, this is a subject that's very important to me because I think in a best case scenario, we would prevent sexual abuse from happening as opposed to learning about it after the fact and trying to compile all the information and data from cases that we see and trying to make decisions about policy. Educate kids about this as young as possible. Let them know what the warning signs are. Let them know that their body is theirs and theirs alone. No one should be touching them. It's important to have these conversations in private with the child, away from any potential abuser. So one general metric or one rule, I guess, that that I think is helpful is, is something called the swimsuit rule. So this is the idea that no one should see or touch the body parts that are covered by your swimsuit. So I think this is something that kids can understand. It's important for them to know that this also includes family members. Nobody should be touching them there. No one should be looking at them there. It's important that kids can name their body parts so they don't have to go into intimate clinical detail as I have been known to do, but just simply your vulva, your breasts, your penis. I think that's pretty sufficient. Kids should also know, so in addition to the fact that people should not be touching them in these private parts, there may be people who will want to look at their body or touch their body or ask them to show their private parts. There may be some people who will show them pornography. This is all not okay. And they also need to know that they should tell you this when it happens. Now, there may be some parents who are listening who might think, is this inappropriate? Is this going to sexualize a child? It is not. It does not need to be a conversation about sex or sexual activity. For young children especially, I don't think they're even going to make that connection. And then to also let kids know that if someone does touch them in a way that they don't like, they should say no, be loud say, don't touch me, and to get out of there. I've seen some parents who will get upset and say, why do you, so basically, why do the grandparents need to ask for permission to hug a child? And to that, I say, this is not about you. This is not about you as an adult, what you want, okay? This is about the child learning that they are allowed to have boundaries and teaching them the importance of having those boundaries and having people respect those boundaries. And I would say, especially for girls, because girls are, on average, biologically predisposed toward being agreeable. And I think also because society rewards girls for being agreeable, it is so important for them to learn that it is okay to say no, and that their body is theirs, and that people need to respect that. And that starts at a very young age. I also think for parents, it's important to keep an eye on both your daughters and your sons because the thing is, pedophiles, people who are sexually interested in kids, don't really differentiate between girls and boys in, in some ways in that they don't, they don't really have a preference in terms of their victims. So boys are not as carefully supervised as girls. And so pedophiles know that they will have an easier time targeting boys. So that's something that parents need to be aware of. I think be protective of both girls and boys. I think it's important for parents to be very involved in the ch- in your child's life. And again, that probably goes without saying, but anytime someone has unsupervised access to your child, it's important for you to get involved and get to know them as much as you can and to be physically present. So don't just drop your child off and then pick them up and not get a sense of what this person is like. Let, the, let that person know that you are also watching them. That's very important. So whether it's a coach or a teacher or whoever else. If a child discloses sexual abuse, first and foremost, believe the child 100%. It can be extremely damaging to a child if they disclose this and they are not believed. So I would say believe them, get law enforcement involved, If someone you know discloses in adulthood that they experienced childhood sexual abuse, 
episode 22 with Michael Malice was on this very subject. I've heard from many of you that you found it helpful, so I would recommend that as a resource. Okay, so I'm moving on now to audience questions. People ask me about men in daycare and male babysitters and whether they should be comfortable with that. So I see all of this prevention as basically being an, an odds game and you are trying to lower the odds of your child experiencing sexual abuse. And when it comes to men working in these areas, statistically, the odds are not in your favor in that I do think a higher proportion of men who work around prepubescent kids are probably there because they have, let's say, non-family-friendly reasons for being there. Will they actually abuse a child? I don't know. But I don't think parents should feel badly about having this concern. I don't think it's misandry to point this out. Okay, another question. How to not sound like an overreacting parent? Well, I would say in this situation, type 2 errors are worse than type 1. So a type 2 error is a situation in which you don't think you have an event when you do. Whereas a type 1 is, an, is when you think you have an event, but you don't. So basically what that means is I think it's okay to err on the side of being overprotective and to find that your kids don't have this experience than to worry about being paranoid and worry about being overprotective, maybe being a bit more permissive as a parent and then finding out that your child actually did experience abuse. Anytime I've seen a celebrity who's gotten arrested for child pornography or who ends up being an alleged serial child abuser, I am never surprised when I see these cases, ever. And when you understand how these people operate, when you understand how sexual predators operate, you won't be surprised. So I would say if anyone has the capacity for being surprised about the prevalence of child sexual abuse, they are not someone who's in a place to judge you for your individual decisions about parenting. It speaks to a larger a larger theme, just that people have all types of opinions about parenting and they love to shame other people for their choices. And you are entitled to have your boundaries and to trust your gut and do what's right, what you feel is right for you. Okay, another question. Why don't adults recognize the warning signs, even when it's so obvious? Yeah, I think what it goes down to is some people just, and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, but some people just see the good or want to see the good in other people. And the reality is with sex offenders and child sex abusers, these people are beyond the pale. They are not, they are not deserving of being given the benefit of the doubt because they will exploit that. They exploit anything and any opportunity that they have to abuse kids or, or just to manipulate people, really, because they know that doing that is going to potentially help them in the future. So why wouldn't they? And I think also many people assume that this is not going to happen to their kids. So they don't care, which, again, it goes back to the selfishness aspect. And I would say if you don't have these conversations with your kids and you don't learn about the warning signs, your kids are at risk. That's just the reality, because if God forbid it does happen to them, they're not going to know what it is. They're not going to know how to talk about it. They're not going to know even that it's wrong and that they should report it to an adult. Now, if if and I think there are some cases in which maybe an adult or a parent has had their own experiences of child sexual abuse, in which case they definitely have my sympathy. And, and maybe they don't want to talk about it because it brings up traumatic feelings for them. In which case, I would say it's so important that you get professional help therapy to help you heal from that because again avoiding talking about this is not going to help kids it puts them at a risk okay another question what should you do 
with your kids if you are suspicious that a grandparent is an abuser. So if, it, if it's your spouse's parent that you believe is an abuser and your spouse disagrees. So this is a very tough situation. Um, I would say it's important to know that I don't, I don't want to tell this person what to do because I don't know them. I don't know really the specifics of their situation. This is most just more broad advice for people listening. Even if abuse isn't actually perpetrated, I don't think it's a good idea because you're essentially taking a gamble. Every time that child is in the presence of a potential abuser, they're being put at risk. And so I would I will use the analogy of cats and mice. You can put a cat and a mouse in the same cage and say, I'm sure it's fine. I'll just keep an eye on the mouse. Make sure the mouse is never alone with the cat. But you know that every interaction that these two creatures have, the cat is going to be trying to eat that mouse. In the same way, every interaction that an abuser or potential abuser has with a child, it is going to be with the goal of having sexual access to them. So what you're teaching the child is those interactions and behaviors that they are seeing and experiencing from the abuser is normal. And even if they're not outright sexual, I mean, I think it's just going to be so much more confusing for kids in that way because kids are not going to be able to differentiate. They have no, I mean, if adults have problems differentiating, imagine what it's like for a kid. They're not going to understand that this person has bad intentions and the nice thing that this person is doing is with a bad intention. So I think it really normalizes grooming behaviors for kids and makes them think that it's totally fine, especially if the parents in the room with them, they're going to think, well, this is acceptable behavior. And so if the child is not abused by that individual, it puts them at a higher risk of being groomed and abused by someone else. And it also means that the child is not going to have the wherewithal to recognize what signs are unacceptable, because if they are, then they'll say, well, why did my parents put me in this situation in which I was at risk? So and then that makes the child feel like, well, why, why weren't my parents looking out for me? And then it also grooms the child so that other adults will be able to interact with them in an inappropriate way. So I know it's probably really tough. I guess I'd want to know why a spouse doesn't see what the other spouse is seeing. But ideally, zero contact. And I, because I think also as a parent, that's going to be really difficult for you to be in those situations uh, maybe it's not as hard for people who have not been in the field just because I've seen the absolute worst of it. And I I would just think I would not want that to happen to a child. And of course it may not, but it, I, I imagine it would weigh heavily on a person to have to be on guard and aware that, that this is this is something that their child is being exposed to possibly. So that's it. I mean, if you can't resolve it, I, I'd suggest marital counseling. That's always very helpful for people. Yeah, good luck. If you as a parent are in a situation in which you cannot physically be present when, say it's for sports practices or any lessons like hobbies that a child is pursuing, I would say to have a buddy system in that case have the child make sure the child knows to never be alone and to have a friend who's looking out for them and for them to be looking out for their friend and that basically they can act as witnesses which is very important in case something happens but also that they are just I, I guess they have this awareness that they should be looking out for any of these inappropriate behaviors and that they have a friend who's also looking out for them and both of them can then report it to a parent. And of course, if it's a situation in which it's one-on-one, -on -one, so it's say it's just the child and a mentor or a teacher, that and in the event that that is an appropriate situation for them to be in, so say if they are getting lessons of some sort, just that the child knows again that they can come to you and tell you about anything that happens and that you will believe them. That's, that's the key thing. And also for that adult to know that you have your eyes on them. And one final question is about how to monitor a child's online social media activity. So I feel this could be another, a whole other episode. If you guys do want that, let me know. What I will say for the time being is that it's important for you to have the child's passwords. I mean, ideally, <laughs> I would just say, don't let kids be on social media. But I guess it's much easier for me to say that than for that to actually be the case. Uh, again, I think it goes back to locking your child in the basement for 
the next 40 years until social media just is not a thing anymore. (laughs) Don't do that. Um, I would say have all of the, if they are going to be on social media, have all of the passwords and have access to their accounts on those platforms, knowing that there's a good chance that, that a child probably is going to create, I think they're called Finstas. I'm not really with it enough to know, but I think it's called a Finsta when you have your main account and then you have another private account that's for your close friends, that's more private. Just be aware that the accounts that you know of may not be all the accounts that exist. Close the private messaging option on those accounts so that lessens the likelihood that other adults can contact them and have access to them. But also be aware that grooming is everywhere. It's also an email. It's also on in video games. It's pretty much, like I said, anywhere that kids are, predators know to go there. So even if your child doesn't have a phone, they will still manage to get access to the internet because that's just how kids are. They can use their friends' phones. They can use a laptop or a computer. So I think the the most important thing is just for a child to know that they can come to you with anything. They tr- they You have a good relationship with your child. And I would say that's a, another key thing with regard to how grooming with regard to gender ideology spreads. Because again, these predators... They know how to target vulnerable teens, kids who are younger than teenage, and they are going in with the goal of separating the kids from their parents. And they know that there's a likelihood, high likelihood that the child does not feel comfortable or doesn't have the social support, does not have a parent or an adult in their life whom they can turn to to talk about what, what they're feeling. To have someone say, you know what, this stranger on the internet who's telling you all these weird things about gender may not have the best intentions for you and you shouldn't listen to them. So as I said, if you'd like me to do another episode with regard to online grooming or political grooming or with regard to, say, gender ideology and how that is playing out in the classroom, which is a whole other devastating nightmare, you can let me know. We have reached the end of today's episode. Thank you to all of you who have made it the full way through. Thank you for all of your support with the podcast and with the end of gender This subject of sexual grooming is a very heavy subject. It is a lot to potentially process. So I really recommend for everyone listening, if the sun is still up outside or even if it's not, go outside, get some fresh air, talk to the people in your life about what you think, hear other people's thoughts about it. That's definitely, these are definitely things that I did when I used to work in the field to help me process things and help to get it out of your system. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. Thank you so much to everyone who has already done that. Always makes my day to read your comments. Thank you also to all of you who are supporting me on Patreon. If you like me doing solo episodes, let me know and I'll do more in the future. If you have specific questions, you can also send them to me on social media. I'm at Dr. Deborah So. You can also find me at drdebrasso.com. See you guys soon.